The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, let's go ahead and start. Um, For the second week, we're looking at means of grace uh, within the church. Um, And this is our last week of systematic theology, at least this go-round. Next uh, week, we're starting a new round of Acts classes, so it's going to be exciting. Um, But uh, the topic of means of grace, um, what that means is the ways by which God gets to his believers what they need to continue to grow in their Christian lives. We uh, gave the image last time on the cover there of Pilgrim's Progress, of of the work of grace started within the soul, like a fire, like a bowl, a fire in a bowl, and Satan trying to pour water on it to get it out. And God, uh, Christ, from behind the wall, feeding oil into it to keep, keep it going. And I love that picture because it, it's such a picture of the dynamic nature of our walk with Christ, the fact that we are never done needing grace. And that was what I spent a lot of time on at the beginning last week. We need, uh, turn the page, uh, page two, we need continued grace the rest of our Christian lives. We need to continue to receive the nourishing grace of Christ if we are to make progress. We will need grace right on through to the end of our salvation journey, right through to receiving our resurrection body. So the means of grace are the, what God gives us here on earth while we're here on earth to help us keep growing in, into Christ-like maturity. Uh, that's what they are. And so we're going to continue to um, build ourselves up in grace. This is all by way of review from last week. Page three, every good and perfect gift uh, comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights, and it is grace from God. Yeah, you should recognize that this list of 11 things that Grudem gives us here, every one of them, the means of grace, are grace from God. Hey, Wells. Grace from God that we do not deserve. Um, and everything we get, you could think of the means of grace like 11 pipelines into your soul. Um, or if you're more medically minded, 11 IV lines flowing into your veins. I don't know what, you know, if you're more horticulturally minded, uh, 11, 11 branches connecting you to the, to the vine, you know, and you're the cluster, that kind of thing. Whatever you, whatever you like. Um, but there are ways that God gets to your soul the things you need to keep growing. So therefore, the pipelines are grace from God and the stuff that flows through them is grace from God. All of it's of grace and we should recognize and we should be thankful for it. I I tell you, the more you meditate on this whole theme, the more thankful you'll be, first for God and His grace and secondly, for your brothers and sisters in Christ who are so frequently means of grace to you to help you keep going and growing in the Christian life. All right, so all of these things are means of grace. What are the means of grace listed on page uh, three? We're going to get through the whole list tonight. Um, need to because we're not going to do this next week. So it's tonight or forget it, right? So we're going to get through the whole list. Thankfully, we've already done the first three and I'll touch on them briefly. But number one, the teaching of the word. Number two, baptism. Number three, the Lord's Supper. Number four, prayer, corporate prayer, prayer for one another. Number five, worship. And number six, church discipline. Number seven, giving. Uh, number eight, spiritual gifts. Number nine, fellowship. Ten, evangelism. And eleven, just general personal ministry that we have one to another. All right, now last week we talked about the teaching of the Word and I deleted all of the Scripture verses uh, that we had. You have to get the handout from last week to get all the supporting Scriptures, but basically this is it. The Word of God, the ministry of the Word of God is the primary means of grace in the Christian life. 
It is the number one way that God gets to our souls what we need to grow. We need the Word of God. And so uh, the faithful teaching and preaching of the Word of God is foundational to our ongoing growth in Christ. Probably the number one way, if you're in a new community and you're trying to find a church and all that, the number one way you can find out what's happening in the church is listen to what's being taught and preached in that um, ministry, especially what's being preached from the pulpit. Because you could have a Sunday school class or teacher. It might be a little off message, so to speak. Uh, But the foundational ministry is the ministry of the Word of God. And uh, you, you can get a quick sense right there of what is happening in the church by how the Word of God is handled. The Word of God has the power to build us up and make us mature to work in our hearts. And therefore, uh, we must have an ongoing work of the ministry of the Word of God. All right, turn the page. We're on page four. A second uh, means of grace that we talked about last week is baptism. A baptism is a means of grace simply because Christ commanded that it be done. And uh, if we obey His commands, we have to imagine there's a blessing with it. There's a blessing that's connected with the obedience to the Lord. And so if we obey what he commands, we will be blessed. And so therefore, just simply by obeying the command, it's a blessing. But, you know, it's, there's a lot of other ways that God blesses us through baptism. For example, when you listen to a brother or a sister in Christ testify to God's grace in their lives, how they have come to faith in Christ, you might listen to how uh, they actually were evangelized, what happened to bring them to faith in Christ. Just to hear the doctrine of the cross of Christ and how joyful an individual is about having received grace from God and the forgiveness of sins, that stirs you in your soul, doesn't it? It should. And as you listen, it motivates you. It's like, boy, I'd love to be able to lead someone to Christ, to be able to bring them to the point where they could be baptized, etc. It's a great means of grace. And therefore, I think it was always, it's always been traditionally in Baptist churches and right from the scriptures, a public act of confession of faith in Christ. It's done publicly. It's not something you do, you know, in the private, just you and the pastor or something like that. But it's something that's done in front of the body of Christ. It's meant to stimulate and to strengthen the body. And so, uh, all, for all of these reasons, baptism itself is a means of grace. Thirdly, we talked about the Lord's Supper being a means of grace. Uh, again, simply because He commanded it, uh, but also because uh, we believe, I believe, that the Lord uh, will send forth His Holy Spirit as we observe the, the uh, ordinance of, of the Lord's Supper. So, whenever we take the bread and whenever we take the juice, Uh, we are reminding ourselves of what was paid for our souls. We're looking back at that point to the cross of Christ. We're thinking about the sacrifice. We're thinking about animal sacrifice, perhaps. Maybe you've never thought about that, but remember uh, that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And that the Lord has given blood, it says in the book of Leviticus, in order to make atonement for your souls. And so it is incredibly gracious of God to set up the blood sacrifice system which was established, I think, right away in the Garden of Eden, but then came to its consummation at the cross of Christ. And so when you eat the bread and when you drink the juice, you're reminding yourselves uh, of the sacrifice that was done for you, the way that the Lord has loved your soul by dying for you. And so just looking back to the cross of Christ is helpful. But again, this is not a private thing. This is something we do together. I'm really not in favor of Christians gathering and having the Lord's Supper just, you know, on their own, etc. I think it's a church ordinance. I think it should be done together in the church, etc. And and so uh, for me, it's a time that we are together and we look around at the body of Christ. And, and Paul even talks about this. We all share from one loaf and it's a symbol of our of our unity in Christ. And so brothers and sisters around the world partake in this ordinance that the Lord set up, uh, sharing in the body and the blood of Christ uh, symbolically. 
And so we uh, are looking around to the body of Christ and reminding ourselves uh, that we're part of one body. Uh, yes, sir. Is it necessary like the Catholics do? They, they take it every, almost every time. When I go, you know, we, we, what they do, we do it, I do it. does have, they all do it. Each time, do you have to? Well, I mean, do you have to do it that often? Yeah, the frequency of the Lord's Supper is an interesting discussion. You know, how frequently should we do it? And, and that's, that's something, you know, I, I, we increased the frequency when I came here. It was quarterly, and we went to um, every other month, so it's bi- bi-monthly. Um, there are some in our ministerial staff that are advocating monthly. I'm reminding them how quickly the weeks pass, and so that might start seeming frequent. And I'm saying, at what point do you stop? Because, you know, pretty soon you're doing it weekly. And the Catholics don't stop weekly. They do it daily. They do it daily, many times a day, all right? So it never stops. I mean, it just keeps on going until it's like, when is enough enough um, at that point? So that's an interesting discussion. I, you know, we don't want to say, well, how could anything be too much of a good thing? It is a good thing. We believe in that. But there's a, there's a big heritage of misunderstanding, I think, around the Lord's Supper, too. And the Catholics do it all the time because that's the center of their whole salvation system. Well, they, they're saying they, don't, they have to... Yeah, they're offering Christ again. When the, when the priest takes the wafer and he offers it up and the bells are ringing and that's the moment of transubstantiation and they're offering Christ on behalf of their, of their sins. It's an ongoing priestly ministry in the style of the Old Covenant. And, uh, you know, I, I don't believe in those things, uh, etc. Now, I, I, would we be harmed by having it weekly? It's possible um, that the, it might lose some of its significance. It's possible that the primacy of the Word of God might be bumped by doing that. Some argue yes, some argue no. There are good, solid churches that have the Lord's Supper every single week, and I don't, I don't find fault with that. So, I don't think there's any final answer on that question. Yes. I'm sorry, I came yeah. in late, so I'm not sure if this is out of sequence. But um, the means of grace, um, do any of these include um, spiritual disciplines? Um, these are, I think what we're looking here are church means of grace. We're not talking about like your private, private quiet time and all that. These are things corporately, but that's a, that's a very, very good question. Yeah, uh, thank you for, for mentioning that. So yeah, obviously your own personal prayer life. And there's some parallels. You know, the, the intake of the word of God is the number one, and that would be too, true for an individual. Worship is on the list. We'll talk about that. That would be as well. But these are corporate, um, so good question. Anyway, um, so I, I guess I mentioned this last week, and I'm urging the body of Christ here as well. To come to the Lord's Supper expectantly, to come to, to uh, the table, so to speak, expecting Him to work, expecting that the Holy Spirit's going to be there, you know, that we're proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. And so part of that is that we're looking ahead to the second coming of Christ. We're looking ahead with great joy uh, to sitting at table with God uh, in, the, in the kingdom. Uh, all of these things are part of it, and I think it's a very rich experience. I do reject uh, the doctrine of real presence, uh, that the body and the blood are really and actually there in some kind of meta- metaphysical way that I can't understand, transubstantiation, all that. Uh, but I also reject at the other end of the spectrum the, the, the bare memorialism of, of Ulrich Zwingli and all that, that it's nothing more than such and such. I don't like that language either. I think clearly the Lord set this apart and urged that it be done as often as we did it, that he would bless it in a specific way. The Lord uh, also upheld that in the church at Corinth when they were doing it in an unworthy manner. Some of them fell asleep, some of them died. So clearly this is not a bare memorial. It's something that's very significant. Uh, it's also a time for us to look at our own situations spiritually, isn't it? You know, we're not to eat or drink in a manner unworthy of the Lord, 
And so if you have unconfessed sin, that's a good time to deal with it, I think, uh, to come seriously to the table. And uh, I think it's also a means of grace to the unconverted, uh, if they might be converted, uh, because we try to what we do what we call fence the table and how I as a pastor will say that this is for this kind of people. And if, you're, if you don't meet this criteria, you've not come to faith in Christ and, and uh, testify to that by water baptism and you know, et cetera, that, that we would ask you not to take it lest you drink judgment on yourself. I think that that wall that the person hits there is good. I think it's good for them. They're on the outside. It's better to be on the outside looking in at the time of the Lord's Supper in, the, in a local church service than on the outside looking in at the final judgment day when the door is shut and you can't get in. I want them to know now that they're on the outside, you see? This is the time to know. This is the time they can deal with it. And so we don't just put up the wall, but we say, come to faith in Christ. Believe in Him and trust in Him and, and next time you can partake, you know, just not this time. And so that's, that's what we're looking at. It's, it's, I think it's a good opportunity for individuals, both Christians and non-Christians, to assess where they stand with God and to remember His grace available for them, the Lord's Supper. All right, uh, fourthly, um, prayer, corporate prayer and prayer for one another. Again, this is all review. We talked about this last time. But, you know, it's really a rich thing to look at the corporate prayer life of the early church in the book of Acts. They just spend a lot of time praying together. And again, I've deleted all the scriptures. You can get the handout from last time. But, but um, they just were consistently gathering uh, for prayer and meeting together to pray for one another. Probably the most exciting example, there's two really exciting examples of that. One is, is in Acts chapter 1 when they're all gathered together and then on into chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes and separates like tongues of fire and comes to rest on each one of them. That's in a corporate prayer meeting, 120 people who are continuing together in prayer and waiting on the Lord for His promise. What a beautiful thing that was. And then later, of course, after Peter and John were arrested after healing that uh, lame beggar and uh, they then have a phenomenal preaching opportunity uh, and the um, temple police came and arrested them and they were hauled in front of the Sanhedrin and they had to give an account for what they had done. And then Peter, uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, gives that, that bold, bold statement. If we are asked to call to, a, if we're called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the rulers of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. What boldness, <coughs> filled with the Holy Spirit. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Beautiful statement. Well, after that, they, they're just, I think the, the religious leaders are back on their heels. They're shocked. They don't know what to say. They're, into, they're kind of paralyzed almost and don't know what to do. They barely even give them a slap on the wrist. They just say, please don't do it again. <laughs> and they send them off. But there's a clear threat that if they keep on doing this, they're going to be persecuted, perhaps even put to death. You know, if the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the men, members of his household? If they're going to kill Jesus, why would they not kill his servants? So there's a clear threat. And what do they do? What do Peter and John do with that threat? Well, they gather the church together and they have a fantastic prayer time. They saturate again their minds in Psalm 2, for example. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Herod and Pontius Pilate met together in the city uh, to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus. They did what your power and will had determined ahead of time should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And then it says, after they prayed, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and, and the place where they're praying was shaken. And they went out and they spoke the word of God boldly. What a great prayer meeting. 
I bet you want to go to one of those, don't you? I always thought that's the greatest prayer meeting in history. And I've always warned, I said, now don't skip our corporate prayer times because that might happen here and you'll, you'll be sorry you missed it. Say, oh, you missed it. That's the best prayer meeting ever. So at any rate, a very rich means of grace is praying together. And, and there you can see the, the sharing of the word, the, the sharing together. And how do you think Peter and John felt after that? I think all fear would have been banished at that point. They're, they're, they're renewed and, and rekindled in their zeal to evangelize. They're ready to go out. And so is everybody. They all went out and spoke the word of God boldly. And so corporate prayer, a great means of grace. Yes, Susan. Is there any reason to no, I don't. I don't think that there. I'm, I'm just scanning over this idea. Um, I don't think that there's an indication one way or the other. I actually think that we're to be filled with the Spirit continually. I think there's a sense of be being filled with the Spirit, and since we're not all together always corporately, then then it's just as valid to be being filled with the Spirit when we're alone as when we are together. But I think there is some there is a reason why the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a sense of God is in this place. And what an awesome thing that is. And we'll talk more about that in a moment with worship. But a sense of the presence of God. And I think corporate prayer, I don't know, for myself, I think I pray much better corporately than I do individually. I just really enjoy praying with the people of God. My mind doesn't wander as much. Um, I, I stick to, we, we focus on those things that we're praying. I, I love hearing how other people pray. They remind me of things that I might forget. We all have blind spots a bit in our prayer lives. And when somebody brings something up, it's really a marvelous time. So anyway, a healthy church life is going to involve corporate prayer. And it's a great means of grace. Okay, well, let's uh, get into some new ones now. Worship. Corporate worship is a powerful means of grace in the life of the church. A definition of true worship we've seen before, very important, John 4, uh, 23 and 24, we saw uh, two weeks ago uh, while I was preaching. It says, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. Again, Philippians 3, 3, for it is we who are the circumcision. We who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So these are two very good definitions of worship. Worship in spirit and truth uh, is, is the essence of worship. I think it's right to say that one of them has to do with our um, um, hearts, so to speak. Um, not just, I don't think that we, I think it's right to not capitalize the word spirit here. I don't think it means worshiping in the spirit of God. I think Philippians 3, 3 clearly is saying that. But I think this means more a hot worship. You know what I'm saying? Something coming from fervency. Uh, you know, never be lacking in zeal. You know, that kind of thing. A sense of fire from within yourself. A sense of love for God. Uh, your, your spirit is worshiping. You know, like Paul says, I pray with my spirit and I pray with my mind. That thing. Um, God testifies to our spirits that we are children of God. Well, you need to be kindled in that. You can't be distant from it or it really isn't worship. You see what I'm saying? What is what is my spirit? Mine in particular? <laughs> it's that immaterial part of you, that, that invisible in, inside part of you, uh, which I, I think is more or less interchangeable with soul, but others don't. Some others... Within yourself. You're, you're worshiping in that in that your, your, your heart, your, your, your affections are kindled, your, your imagination is kindled, your, um, 
your zeal is there. Oh, well, I, I actually, in your case, I can, I can believe that. I, I see that. I see that in you frequently, so that's a good thing. But to others don't, frankly, and let's be honest. Uh, don't you need to rekindle yourself sometimes? You know, and doesn't the psalmist even do that? Where he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. What's he doing talking to himself for? What is he, crazy? Well, he is talking to himself. Like in another sense, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. Sometimes you have to talk to yourself. Well, I find that easier to do in a really hot worship service. And I don't mean that the temperature is too high. That's bad for preaching, I found. People are like, <laughs> you know, I'd rather it be cold than hot, you know, physically, because people tend to be more alert, you know, when they're, you know. I remember my first church uh, that we were involved in, um, you know, uh, up in Totsfield, first church I pastored, but I wasn't pastor at that time. We met in a garage. You remember this, Christy? And uh, the garage had zero insulation and we met in the winter and so uh the guy was like a construction worker and he had these like like jet engine heater things they look like you know like like that and you couldn't hear anything within a mile around that so what he did was he had like three of these running in this small little garage you walked in there it must have been 106 degrees you know and and you're coming in there and you're just taking off everything and just sweating but it had no insulation and of course they had to be off once the service started and the temperature's plummeting by the 10 minutes you know and and you just start and you bring layers is what you do you put on first your sweatshirt and then your sweater and then you know by the time you're done you're all bundled up and you're freezing it's tailor made for getting sick you know it really but every single week. How did we even get into this? Anyway, the point is, I I don't mean physically cold. I mean that our hearts are cold. You know what I'm saying? When your heart is cold toward God, how could it be? Hasn't Jesus done enough to kindle us for eternity? Shouldn't we always be thankful to God? I mean, Jesus carried our cross for us. He took our our guilt upon himself. He, He drank the cup of wrath. How could our hearts be cold? But they are. They get cold. We drift away a bit. And Jesus said in one place, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. He wants our hearts. He wants us to love worship. It is so wrong for us, I think, to come and say, I don't want to get anything out of this. I'm here to just give to the Lord. That is so wrong. I've heard that kind of thing. Doesn't that sound noble? Doesn't that sound noble? I'm not here to to get anything. I'm here to give to the Lord, the needy being that he is. You know, (laughs) he's coming to get something from me. I personally don't need anything from him. But he apparently needs something from me, so I'm here to give him this little bucket of praise. Here you go, Lord. You know, it's just so pathetic. I think what we ought to do is say, I need him again. I need him all the time, and I need to have my heart kindled again and to remember again why I first loved Jesus and to not turn away from my first love. And corporate worship is a time for that. You know, and I believe, and Eric and I have talked a lot about this, I believe that I have a role to play, and Eric has a very important role to play. I think leaders have an important role to play. I think it's Eric's job to say, basically, why are you downcast in your souls? Why are you so disturbed within you? And and to challenge you to put your hope in God and all that. And I do too. But it's mostly your job. It really is. I mean, you need to get ready for worship. Come in ready to worship. How awesome is it to to be surrounded by a bunch of brothers and sisters that are filled with the Spirit and are worshiping? At that point, frankly, it doesn't matter much if it's not your favorite song. It really doesn't. If it's orthodox, if the, if the music is glorifying to God at that point, you can worship and should. You're going to say something, Susan? Yes. Well, I guess this is a pretty big topic, but... Well, then we probably won't go into it, but go ahead. Go ahead. 
I might need it or whatever I want, but uh, I do come to worship definitely with an attitude, Lord, I need this. I need you. Right. I need to hear from you. Mm-hmm. And it, what I, it seems to foster is more of an individual kind of experience with him. Mm-hmm. Often I don't sing the songs because mm-hmm. I really want to be talking to him. Mm-hmm. I may listen, I may tune in on the songs every once in a while, or sometimes I sing them. But it's, so I guess um, I'm just coming, I suppose, that sometimes when I've talked to people about worship, they have this idea that we're all supposed to be doing this and that that's the means of grace. But when I come with that attitude of, Lord, I need to hear from you, then it's much more of an individual kind of interaction with him. Well, I understand that, and I think there's a place for that. But I would consider, uh, urge you to consider Ephesians 5, 19 and 20, which is on page 10. And there it says, Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your hearts to the Lord. So there's both halves of it. Should we sing and make music in our hearts to the Lord? Absolutely. And you should do that all the time. But when we gather together, let's speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I think it's important for us to recognize we're going to a place where there's going to be huge quantities of other believers. <laughs> it's not going to be just us and Jesus. And so, and at that point, that I, I assure you, and especially for those that are more kind of loner types or, or you know, get more strength out of being alone and all that, it'll be okay. It'll be fine. You won't, you won't be missing that. Okay, you'll be glad that, that all the other believers are there because we'll be fixed at that point. There, there, there won't be any desire uh, to be away from people, um, etc. But I do think that the corporate worship, when it says speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, I think it's to help each other. You know, we're to, we're to help each other. And uh, when I'm standing next to people that are really singing and really excited about their faith and are into the worship, it helps me. It really does. I mean, there's a couple of... of of folks that I just love worshiping near, I really do. Um, I just, I just love it. I'm not going to say their names; they might be embarrassed, and then they might stop doing it, and I don't want them to do that. So I'm not going to say. It. But uh, I love, I love being around that, and it motivates me. All right, let's keep going. Back on page five, corporate worship definitely a means of grace. Uh, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, "Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them." And so after they'd fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So God used corporate worship there to call out Barnabas and Saul to the first missionary journey. It's in the context of that corporate worship. And I think the reason for that is pretty plain. He wanted the corporate body to share in that ministry. You remember after Paul and Barnabas returned after that, they went back to Antioch and reported to that church. And you have to imagine that that being a praying church, a healthy church, kept lifting them up in prayer. It was their ministry. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to ask... in that part where it talks about fasting, I think we have a tendency to make fasting a very private, personal thing because we don't want to be boasting about it. Mm-hmm. What do you think about like an entire church fasting together yeah. like as a church? Yeah, I think it's totally fine. You know, I think in, in Matthew 6, um, you know, Jesus is warning about motive more than anything. I mean, if you take that too far, then we shouldn't be praying together corporately either. You should never pray in front of anybody else, and clearly that can't be the case because there's so much corporate prayer in the Bible. So there, I think in Matthew 6, he's just putting up a barrier against pride is what it is, that we should not be arrogant about our, our almsgiving and our, and our praying and our fasting. But we should not, we should not do, uh, he sums it all up right in the very first verse, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. The word to is the important thing. What is your, what's your motive? But I don't think that this church, their motive was to be seen by each other. It was just something they decided to do. So that's a very, very good question. But I think there's a reason why something happens in this corporate setting, and that's uh, that the Lord wants to um, have the whole church involved. Um, worship involves a mutual sharing of gifts. 
Um, that's powerful evidence of the presence of God in our midst and can even be powerful in evangelism. Those three things come out of 1 Corinthians 14. There he's talking about the superiority of prophecy over tongues. Remember that whole discussion? Some people think it's a moot point at this point because we don't have these signed gifts anymore. And I'm not going to get into that question, but I do want to bring up clearly the mentality of Paul here is concerned for the corporate worship setting. He wants that to be a certain way. And so he says, if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he'll be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all. And the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What shall we say then, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. All of these things must be done for the strengthening of the church. So you can see how there's just a, a, a strengthening of the body as each brings uh, what they have to contribute there. Um, also notice that there's a concern there for the unbeliever. And so good, solid, spirit-filled worship and specifically a speaking of the word of God in the midst of that can have a tremendous, tremendously powerful impact on an unbeliever. I, I think it would be wrong for me as a preacher of the word to not expect and trust that, that someone would be converted while I preach and while we have our worship time. Why not? I mean, I get that right out of this. Surely they'll fall down and worship and say, surely God is in this place. I mean, that's, we, should, we should want that. And we should want unbelievers to come to our worship service and have that experience. Okay. Also, Old Testament parallels are rich on this issue of corporate worship, showing God's desire to dwell with his people in corporate worship. We've talked about this before. Shekinah, it re- relates to God's dwelling. That's what the word means, as I talked about in my Emmanuel sermon uh, before Christmas. But uh, the glory of God was showing the people he was dwelling with them. Other than that, he wouldn't know because God is a spirit, right? We can't see him. Uh, so God had this glory cloud suddenly appear and, and just be there so that people would know that God was dwelling amongst, amongst the people or God is, it says in one of the Psalms, enthroned in the praises of his people. And so when the people are together having corporate worship, God is there and it's a powerful thing. He's enthroned in the praise of the people. It says the trumpeters and singers joined in unison, Second Chronicles 5, 13 and 14. The trumpeters and singers joined in unison as with one voice to give praise and thanks to the Lord. Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals and other instruments, they raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good. His love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't you love to see it? I couldn't finish my sermon because the glory cloud came and we all just fell down and worshiped God. I think that's an awesome thing. But it's really a foretaste of our face-to-face fellowship with God in heaven. I'm I'm looking forward to that. God intends to dwell with us forever. But corporate worship has a rich background in the Old Testament. We should not expect a lesser experience now. Now we've been indwelt. We are the temples. God is indwelling us by his spirit. And so we should expect that. Also, you know, this story, worship was even a weapon against the enemies of God when Jehoshaphat worshiped. And uh, I'm not going to read through all this, but uh, the Ammonites and Moabites were, were killed each other. You know, God, So you don't need to fight this battle. Let the worshipers go first and let them sing praise to God and then just watch what I'll do. So basically, again, uh, worship is a tremendous uh, weapon against our enemies. Now, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. You know, Martin Luther said, you know, next to the preaching of the word, Satan hates, you know, a good hymn sung by the power of the spirit. He hates that. I mean, there's that, that power in, in, in spirit filled worship, uh, even to the bringing down of strongholds and corporate worship centers on the ministry of the word to each other. 
and also involves a gift of music. Get that out of Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. All right. Susan, you had one more? Go ahead. Um, the laying on of hands, placing your hands on someone, do you consider that a part of corporate prayer or is that another means of individual, no, another means of um, grace, basically? Well, that's interesting that you bring that up. He, uh, uh, Grudem actually goes on about that for three pages, <laughs> which is not included in your outline. I didn't have time to go through three pages on the laying on of hands. Um, uh, you know, there's evidence that God gives grace through this idea of laying on of hands, that Timothy received his gift uh, when the body of elders gathered around him and laid on hands. Um, I, I think the laying on of hands is a way of the body identifying with people and, and saying, we're with you, we're, we're here, we care about you. I think Jesus laid hands on people to heal them in, in order to show the healing was from him, and so there's a connection there. He didn't need to do any of that. Clearly, the centurion's servant, he didn't even go near him, just said the word and his servant was healed. But he likes to lay hands on to show a personal touch. And I think that there's that tangible reminder that we're part of the body of Christ together. And it seems that at least once God gave a gift to Timothy during that time. Uh, We see the same thing in Acts 13 with the church at Antioch laying hands on Barnabas and Saul and sending them off. There's a sense of, of cooperative effort, collaborative effort. Whether it is itself a means of grace, I'm saying sure, why not? I mean, he's, Grudem isn't making this list narrow. He's got 11 things. Originally, it were just those three, you know, the preaching of the word, the ordinances, and church discipline. Um, but he's extending it uh, and trying to find different avenues, so that's, that's fine. All right, let's talk about church discipline. Um, when, I mean, when I speak about church discipline, I, I am talking about that uh, discipline. It's misspelled there, I'm sorry, but um, is that process by which uh, unrepentant sinners are expelled from the body of uh, the church body. That's, that's what I'm talking about in this subsection here. Uh, later, I, I want to talk about church discipleship uh, in the last section, and that's uh, the ministry we have to one another. And frankly, when I teach on church discipline at the new member class, I, I make it all part of the same thing. I, I think it should never be the case that somebody would be uh, disciplined without the church making a reasonable effort at doing uh, steps before that that make it unnecessary. I mean, even Jesus implies that in Matthew 18. You go and then you go again, et cetera. There's a pattern that you follow, but I think there's even more you can do and should be doing. But I'll talk about that in a minute. This is that final step of church discipline, the way we usually mean it, and that is the, uh, the act of the church by which an unrepentant sinner is cast out of the body and declared to be no longer a member of that church body. This is taught in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and in and Matthew chapter 18. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 says, When you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, then hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and the spirit saved in the day of the Lord. And then at the end of that same section, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. So there's pretty very obviously and clearly taught uh, that if you've got an unrepentant sinner, somebody who's doing uh, you know, damage to the body of Christ, uh, they need to be confronted and dealt with and clearly expelled. I mean, that's the word that's used here. Expel the wicked man from among you. And then <clears throat> Matthew 18, you know, in verse 17, it says, he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. <clears throat> and if he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as you would a pagan or tax collector. Okay, that's what church discipline is. Why are we talking about it tonight? How is it a means of grace to the church? That's what we're trying to understand here. Well, there are three benefits, I think, that come uh, to the body of Christ. There are probably more than this. 
These are three that I identify right from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. First, there's a strong warning to the sinner, possibly leading to genuine conversion or certainly at least genuine repentance. Okay, that's a means of grace to that individual, isn't it? I mean, when you are sinning so grievously and you just won't listen and then the church votes you out, uh, I look on that as a means of grace. That's not a time to be coddled. It's not a time to be comforted and said they're there to that you're in grave danger. The body of Christ seems to think you're not a believer. Now, you might dismiss that and say they could be wrong and they could be. But is it likely that a huge, you know, the body of Christ that knows you and has, has, has walked with you all this time and is now saying that we think that you, there's a good chance you're not a believer, you ought to look to your soul, see if you're in the faith, test yourself to see if you're in the faith. I think that's a very serious means of grace to somebody. At very least, a person is a believer, but in a very grievously backslidden state. And the, and the longer they slide, the more damage they're going to do to their own souls and to the reputation of Christ and all that. They ought to repent quickly. And so I think that this is a great means of grace to the individual. But how much more if they're not a believer at all? And it's finally popped up. <laughs> Circumstances have finally shown them to be what they really are. And that is unsaved. And, you know, Jesus said, treat him as you would a pagan, an unbeliever. Okay? And so my feeling is that individual ought to wake up and deal with the fact that they probably are or may very well be unconverted. And then they look inward and they try to find out what's going on. A great means of grace to them. A very vigorous truth-telling. <laughs> and uh, I would much rather go through this than go to hell. You see? And as miserable as this is, this is much better than going to hell. And I, I would have to say, when all is said and done and we're, we're around the throne and, and everything's finished and there's no more threats and we tell each other our stories, how many people do you think will be there over the hundreds of years of church history that went through this and God used it to bring them to a genuine conversion and repentance? I would have to think it would be in the thousands, if not tens of thousands, that God uses this to really wake them up and then they come to faith. So a church that won't do that is doing no favors to that individual. Secondly, it's a means of grace because it's a strong warning to the church body, isn't it? I mean, what happened when Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead? I mean, right there, right in the middle. I mean, you talk about church discipline. That wasn't done by the body of elders. That wasn't done by a church vote. That was rather directly done by a surgical strike from God himself. For in him we live and move and have our being. And if God chooses that we don't have our being anymore, then we don't. <laughs> And Ananias and Phyra, God chose that they not have their being anymore. And how, what, a, what impact did that have? Doesn't that make everyone want to look to their own house, to their own situation? It's like, whoa, what happened? Well, they told a lie. Well, it could be that I may have told one or two of those in my life. And you start seeing the grace of God and then you start realizing, you know, sin is serious. God dealt with it seriously, very seriously. And it causes you to look inward and to deal seriously with the sin in your own life. And certainly not to imagine that you could just go on in that pattern of sin that has now been identified and been thrown out of the church. If, that ha if you do that, you'll be thrown out. And so it's a warning not to do that sin, maybe adultery or some other type of sin. A great warning. And so uh, sin is, is checked. Its, its progress is checked, you see. If you turn the thing around, if the church won't discipline, then sin has free reign. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. It just runs. It's terrible. So it's definitely a means of grace to check the spread of corruption and to cause us to look to ourselves and to be serious about sin. Yes? expel someone from our church body. That would include removal from membership. But what else would that include? Because our church, when we gather Sunday mornings, mm -hmm. 
you know, that's a mix of believers and unbelievers. Sure. But yeah. what, what would they be expelled from? And how would we even know? Well, they're definitely, you know, legally not members of the church anymore. So whatever advantages or privileges that come from being a member are no longer there among them. But most Baptist churches historically have not, I mean, nor how could you, you know, prevent them from coming to your public meetings? I mean, what are you going to do? Can you imagine how, uh, how ugly that would be at the door, like a metal detector, like getting on a plane or something like that? Oh, not so fast. You know, you're out. You know, or, or even, you know, some have done that with excommunication with the Lord's Supper and you have to have a little little uh, disc or something that the elders give you during the week. And if you don't have that, they won't accept you at the table. And they've done that. There's been, and they take it very seriously, etc. Uh, you know, other churches have not done that. And actually, they want the unbeliever to come to the public services because they really want them, their spirit saved in the day of the Lord. They want them to repent. So they actually desire them to come to the public worship. Um, concerning the Lord's Supper, it's all, you know, it's a logistical nightmare to try to keep them from actually taking the, the Lord's Supper. What you do is you do it by warning. You say, look, if you take this, you may be eating and drinking judgment on yourself. Remember Ananias and Sapphira and don't play with this. If you've been excommunicated, if you're not a member, then don't take the Lord's Supper. <laughs> but if you do, we're not going to say anything. It's that we'll leave it to God <laughs> and he will do what he will do. Uh, that's the best that I can make of that. It's a good question. Other, other groups do shunning. You know, they won't even talk to them. With such a man do not even eat and so they will not eat with them, etc. The Amish do that, etc. There's a lot. They've, they've really split many times over shunning problems. And all that's a very painful process. All right, the third benefit to the church is protection uh, for the church's reputation in the community, and that's a means of grace as well to the lost in the community. If the if if the church is seen as a kind of a corrupt place where anything goes, then how can you be salt and light, and how can you share the gospel? How can you say God deals seriously with sin and judgment day is coming? I was like, well, look at you though. I mean, what a mess. I mean, this happened a year and a half ago and you didn't do anything. That happened over there. You got a member of your church who did this and you haven't done a thing. They have, you have no reputation at that point. Bad reputation. So those are three means of grace. Now, lesser forms of discipline will be covered in the last means of grace in the extra sheet that I gave you. I'll talk about that in a minute. Giving is a means of grace for the body. Um, remember, we're talking about receiving grace from God, right? Isn't that what we're talking about? Means of grace are ways by which we get things from God that we need. So you think, well, wait a minute, this is giving. Isn't this us giving? Yes, but it's called grace. It's grace from God to give. And as a matter of fact, the more generously you give, the more grace from God it is. How is that? Well, first of all, just look, 2 Corinthians 8. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. That's how he introduced the topic. We want you to know how gracious God has been to the Macedonian churches. Well, how was God gracious to the Macedonian churches? They gave an overflowing, generous amount to the relief of the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Well, it sounds like they were gracious. <laughs> no, Paul is talking here about how God was gracious to them. I want you to know about it. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Who gets the credit for the rich generosity? Here, God does. And so God has given them a richly generous spirit. That's grace from God, isn't it? And so once you get into the habit of generous giving... It becomes a tremendous avenue of grace. Things just open up in your life. Many, many good things come. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Now, that's an interesting verse. I love interesting verses. How do you give beyond your ability? Some time ago, I was reading a quote from Julius Hodge, a basketball player. And he said, he said, I want to exceed my potential. I just laughed and laughed over that. I said, how do you exceed your potential? Is it even possible to exceed your potential? 
you know, or like Buzz Lightyear, to infinity and beyond. You know, I don't know how you, how do you do that? How do you give your ability and even beyond your ability? Well, I think here it's no joke. I think the idea of going beyond your ability is grace from God. God has moved you to a whole new realm. You couldn't have done that before. As a matter of fact, you would never have given like that if God hadn't moved in you. And so when you see, you, all of a sudden you start being thankful that God has freed you up to be that generous. You know, it's almost like David said, I think, oh, who are we that we could be this generous, God? You know, and you think, what an odd prayer. But what he's doing is he's giving credit for their own generosity. That's a beautiful thing, isn't it? So this is a means of grace. It is grace because it frees us from idolatry and selfishness and materialism. Colossians says that uh, greed is idolatry. So if you're giving generously, it's hard to be greedy. <laughs> All right. So it frees you from idolatry and selfishness. It enables us to store up treasures in heaven. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their award in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Jesus is there instructing you how to give money. And, and specifically, as we mentioned a moment ago, that we should not do it to be seen by people and in that case, you lose your reward. And so the idea there is you want to store up treasure in heaven, right? And so this gives you a chance to become very rich on Judgment Day. Very rich. And so Randy Alcorn talks about, he uses the illustration of Confederate money. You know, there was a time that it had great value. And then there was a time after that it had no value. Well, let's just take the word Confederate off. All money's like that. Did you not know that? It's like the ticket to the Super Bowl, 2007 Super Bowl. Let's say you have one of those things. What's it? I don't even know what the face value is, $140 or something like that. There you go. You got that ticket. You're going to hold on to it. It's precious to you, very precious. And you hold on to it through February and through March and on into April and May and June. Okay, and then you show it to your friend. I have a ticket to the Super Bowl. You do? I didn't know they were printing them that early. It's like, well, let me see that thing. Well, that was for this year's Super Bowl. It's April, friend. Okay, the game is over. You missed it. <laughs> okay, the ticket is now officially worthless. Okay, well, that's the way it is with all of our material possessions and all of our money. If you give them away while you have the time, then they become eternally valuable. That's the thing. It's a grace from God to give because you convert it to something that's going to last forever. Heavenly currency, if you would. That's the treasure principle that Randy Alcorn talks so much about. Um, develops a proper sense of a partnership and love with other brothers and sisters and their struggles and ministries. Paul talks about in the Philippians. You, he talks about the partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. They shared financially with him. They helped him financially. And, you know, or if you see your brother in need and you help him with material possessions, you show the love of Christ for them. You're, you're a sharer or a partaker with them in their, in their issues. It bonds the body of Christ together. It also tests and proves us as fit stewards of kingdom resources. Is that important? Well, look, Jesus said, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who would trust you with true riches? That's Jesus' attitude toward money right there. <laughs> you know, worldly wealth is not true riches, right? So if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who's going to give you tr a property of your own? So in other words, every time you have money, it's a bit of a test from God to see what you do with it. And if you prove yourself faithful, what's he going to do? Give you more. And I don't mean just more money, more responsibility, more stuff. Look at George Mueller. How faithful was he? And God just kept opening up his horizons, giving him more and more stuff that he could be a, a steward of. He was tested and approved as a fit steward. 
And so it gives us more resources to manage. Spiritual gifts are obviously a conduit of grace to the body of Christ as a whole. They're always called grace from God. But to each one of us, it says grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. And so spiritual gifts are grace from God. It says also in Romans 12, we have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, uh, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Whatever your spiritual gift package is, and that's the way I look at it, it's never just one thing, but an array of things that enable you to be faithful and serve the body of Christ, it is grace from God to you. It's grace. It frees you from the sadness and tragedy of a wasted life. You get to, you get to actually do something that matters. You get to actually build up the body of Christ for eternity. It also isn't just grace to you, but it's grace to whoever you touch, whoever you bless. Whenever you use your spiritual gift, you are actually blessing other people and, and that draws you together. It's a great grace to the body of Christ, these spiritual gifts. Fellowship, the next one. Fellowship is a rich form of God's grace. Eating those covered dish meals, you know, a little bit of broccoli casserole, some chicken soup. We had the greatest chicken and lime soup the other night, other day. I couldn't believe how good that was. Have you ever had chicken lime soup? I'd never had that before. It just kind of cleans you out, you know. It's a cold season and it's just good for you. Now, tell the truth. When you think of fellowship, do you think of food? Oh, come on, be honest. Do you think of food when you think of fellowship? Many of us Baptists do. But, uh, you know, why not? Is that not part of it? It was for the early church. They used to share fellowship meals together. They used to eat together with glad and sincere hearts. They used to get together and have a meal. There's great fellowship in that. There's nothing wrong with that. But fellowship's more than that, and you know it. It has to do with just the friendship that you have together, with the fact that you're not alone in this Christian life, that you have all things in common. Uh, the early church showed that by sharing their material possessions. And if anyone had a need, they would sell that possession and, and give the money to the apostles. And it was distributed to the poor as they had need. So there was tremendous sharing. But it's more than just material possessions. There's a sharing of our lives together. It's a terrible thing to be lonely, isn't it? Terrible. I, I think there can be few things more, more destructive to the soul than you think about some man or some woman, you know, maybe elderly, maybe not. Maybe a little bit antisocial, a little bit awkward socially and through events in their lives. They just they, they don't know anybody. They're living in the big city and they just don't know anybody. And that is a, a, a tragedy of the soul. The Christian doesn't ever need to experience that tragedy. Isn't that beautiful? We have a body uh, we're brothers and sisters. Jesus said, remember how the disciples said, Lord, we have left everything. What then will there be for us? What do we get? <laughs> He said, I tell you the truth, anyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or children or fields for my sake and for the gospel will not fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Brothers, sisters, farms, fields, all kinds of stuff. What does he mean? He's saying basically anything a brother or sister owns, it's kind of yours. And if they're open, open, they'll let you stay there. You can partake in it. You can participate. There's a sense of collective shared reality there. And it's a beautiful thing, isn't it? Also, your problems are not yours alone, but there are going to be people that God will bring to help you bear those burdens. You don't have to bear it alone. It's a beautiful thing. Fellowship, a great means of grace. Um, evangelism. Evangelism is obviously a means of grace to the lost. How would that be true? How is evangelism a means of grace to lost people? <laughs> Come on, this is an easy one. I know it's late. We only have four more minutes. Okay. 
Without evangelism, what happens to the lost people? They don't even know about the availability of God's grace. Yeah, they go to hell, <laughs> basically. They, they do not go to heaven, you know? So evangelism is essential. Romans chapter 10, how shall they heal here without someone preaching to them, right? So they must hear the gospel. So it's obviously a means of grace to the lost. Well, how is evangelism a means of grace to those who are already saved? Oh, it's a, it's a rich means of grace. Look at this, uh, page 10. It enables us to be partners with God in the ministry of reconciliation. Isn't that fantastic? 2 Corinthians 5. It enables us to rehearse again and again the joyful news which first saved us and thus rekindle our own love for the gospel. I really think the best evangelism is a form of worship by the evangelist. It's kind of like, you know, I really hope you come along and join me in this exciting thing that I'm doing right here, but whether you do or not, I love Jesus. He died on the cross. He rose on the third day. There's a sense of joy and worship. I'm not saying you say those words, but there's a sense that whether they join you or not, you're going to be excited and thrilled about this gospel message because it saved your soul. And so you get to kind of rekindle your own fire that way. Um, It puts us in a needy position so that we absolutely must depend on the grace of God for fruit. Why is that good? To put us in an absolutely needy and dependent position so that apart from him, we, we will not be successful. Why is that good for us? That's right. We don't become arrogant. Is it easy to lead someone to Christ? Oh, I think Jesus would say it's, it's impossible. I really believe it's impossible, not just for the rich to enter, but anybody. I think it's impossible for us. But with God, all things are possible. And you feel that impossibility, don't you? Don't, you, you wrote cards, many of you, I hope you did, of people you're trying to lead to Christ. I bet you there are some names in there you're like, I just don't see how it's going to happen. I've tried again and again to bring this person to faith. And you feel that impossibility. You bump into a barrier. Every time you try to talk to them, you're like, how could it happen? And so therefore, for us to be really fruitful as a church evangelistically, God has got to do it. He's got to do it. And so it brings us face to face with our inadequacies, with what we cannot do. And that is a very good thing for us so that we become totally dependent on him. That's a good thing. It puts us in a position to suffer for Christ through persecution and rejection. Wait a minute, I thought we were talking about means of grace. (laughs) But it is a grace. You know, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, said Jesus. It puts us in a position to be treated like our master was. Evangelism does. Uh, It enables us, therefore, to store up treasures in heaven and for eternal rewards. And it forms unusually strong bonds between the evangelist and the person who comes to faith in Christ through their ministry. I mean, I still remember Steve, the guy who led me to Christ. He, I don't even know where he is right now, but I would still, if I saw him, I'd give him a hug. Thank you for leading me to Christ. He actually gets embarrassed. I saw him a number of years after, after Christy and I were married. He's like, I didn't do anything. Yes, you did. You know, you were, you were faithful and you shared the gospel. It's just a beautiful means of grace to, get to, to lead somebody to Christ. Isn't that wonderful? I, I mean, one of my number one goals for this, for this year, 2007, is to kindle within you a yearning to lead someone to Christ yourself this year. So you get to have that experience. So you get to you get to have the joy of bringing someone to faith in Christ. That's exciting, isn't it? And I'd want to do anything I could to help you with that, with resources, materials, to do the baptism afterwards if you gave me that privilege. I think the whole thing is exciting. But I think it's a joy. It's great grace. Finally, personal ministry to individuals. I just listed here, we're, almost, we're just about out of time here, but basically a list of one another verses. We should wash one another's feet. We should instruct or counsel one another. We should serve one another in love. We should um, um, bear with one another in love and keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. We should be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. We should, as I mentioned earlier, speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. 
singing and making music in our hearts. Uh, we should teach and admonish one another with all wisdom as the word of Christ dwells in us richly, etc. And then I gave you this sheet here, which I did some time ago. And this is what I want to finish with. Did you all get it? It's on the back table. It wasn't included. Well, grab one as you go out. But what it is, it's a list, of what I call a toolbox for church d- discipline and discipleship. And what I said when we got to talking about church uh, discipline is that I think there's all kinds of stuff the church should be doing before you ever get to the point where you're disciplining somebody for adultery or some other thing. There should be such a strong network of relationships that if stuff starts to crop up, it gets dealt with and nipped in the bud quickly. If there's some bad habits or whatever, nipped in the bud. And so therefore, there's all kinds of stuff we should be doing for one another, and all of these are means of grace. And it depends on what the person, what their situation is. For example, if the individual is doing well and they just need to keep going, well, then what, what's the church's response? What should you do? Well, encourage them and praise them. Say, you know, when you did that, brother or sister, that was a great grace to me. I, I was encouraged by that. Thank you. That's a means of grace to them to keep going, right? Uh, suppose the individual needs information. They just lack some things. They didn't know some verses that were relevant to their life situation. What should, you, what should your response be? Well, I think you ought to teach them, <laughs> instruct them and inform them, show them the verses that are relevant. All right. Suppose the individual hasn't gotten off the dime. They need to get going. You know, they're still at square zero <laughs> in some areas. Right. Well, then I would use the word exhort or some use the word encourage or spur one another on toward love and good deeds, stimulate or urge, provoke, you know, get them going. Like when you think of a spur, right, you think of a horse standing there and then there's the spur. What does the spur do? Yeah, doesn't it encourage the horse to move, you know? Well, don't you need occasionally to be spurred on toward love and good deeds? I mean, that's what... But it's a means of grace to get you off off the dime and get you going. Uh, suppose the individual's having a hard time, going through a hard time. Well, then you comfort them and console them with words from Scripture. Suppose the individual is starting to go wrong, but they haven't really gone, but they're starting to get some bad habits. Well, then you could warn them, correct them, or admonish them. There are Bible verses behind each one of these. I don't have them listed out here, but we're told to do this for each other. So if you say, look, brother or sister, that way that you're heading is going to lead to a bad way. Don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, Suppose the person is determined to go wrong. You've already warned them and they're like, I'm not listening. I'm going to do what I want to do. Well, then at that point, you would rebuke them. You know, that's a stronger, harsher word. It's like, when was the last time I rebuked anyone? Well, it's in the Bible. As a pastor, you're to correct, rebuke, and admonish with great patience and careful instruction. So it's, it depends on the situation. And then suppose they're unrepentant. Well, then that's where we get into final discipline. Don't you see how there's all kinds of stuff we should be do, doing before we get to that place? And all of these are means of grace one to another. All of them. We can all be doing this for each other. Okay? Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the time we've had this semester to study systematic theology. We thank you for Wayne Grudem, our brother in Christ, who... Most of us have never met, uh, but we have received benefit from him. Uh, That has been for us a great means of grace, his teaching ministry. We thank you for it, Lord. We thank you for all the things we've learned the last two weeks about means of grace in a local church. I pray that it would persuade us, as if we might still need persuasion, to be faithfully, energetically active in church life the rest of our lives as Christians. We need these means of grace to to, uh, be pipelines into our souls to keep us strong. So thank you for all these things and this time we've had together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes 
and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.